0: Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Of heaven, Heavenly Father, we come this morning asking that you would use a crooked stick to point the way to the straight and narrow, and we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. We'll continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew that we started back in the fall. If you've been with us, you'll remember the first four chapters of Matthew are designed primarily to establish this truth that Jesus is the fullness of the Old Testament. And Matthew has done that in a number of ways. We've looked at these fulfillment formulas. That's one of Matthew's favorite devices, pointing out time and time again, and we'll continue to see this, that Jesus fulfilled this Old Testament prophecy in this way. And we saw that in the genealogy in the opening chapter there where Jesus identifies with sinners and particularly those coming out of the Old Testament, both Jews and Gentiles. And we've seen that in these first four chapters by presenting Jesus. Matthew presents Jesus as retracing the footsteps of those people that he came to save. The nation of Israel from the Old Testament Gentiles, to this day, sinners, and particularly his life retracing the footsteps of the Exodus. Leaving, going into uh, Egypt to shelter from threat of death, being delivered out of Egypt, passing through the waters. We've seen Jesus retracing all of those footsteps as he's being identified with with sinners those that he came to save that is a literary device that matthew uses in these first four chapters And when you come to chapter five where we are this morning this is the first major teaching block in matthew's gospel and jesus goes up on this mountain verse one of chapter five and the main point there i'm convinced is a parallel to mount sinai you remember as he's retracing the footsteps and identifying with Israel. You remember when Israel came out of Egypt after the Exodus, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the law of God presented to the people of Israel. The Lord your God has delivered you out of slavery as citizens of this new delivered kingdom. This is what life is to look like. That's essentially what happens at Mount Sinai. And you have a parallel here as the Lord has delivered you out of the ultimate slavery, which is sin and death, the exodus in the Old Testament being a picture of that, a shadow of that, a type of that, this is what life as a citizen delivered in the New Kingdom looks like. This is what citizenship looks like. And so Jesus is being presented here as Moses' great successor. In fact, when you uh, look at the covenant with Moses... Moses has promised a greater prophet is going to come. Moses himself is a foreshadowing, a type of this greater prophet to come who will provide the ultimate exodus, the ultimate deliverance, and that's fulfilled here in Jesus. And so Matthew's pointing this out in a number of different ways. And we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and he's giving us the, the, the law, quote, quote, what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom from this mountaintop And it opens, and we're all very familiar with this, with these formulaic sayings. Each one of these is in two parts. You have the first part, blessed are. You have the second part, theirs is or theirs shall be. And the first part is the spiritual description of those who are citizens of the kingdom. And then the second part is the blessings that those who are citizens of the kingdom will receive. It explains how those who are identified as kingdom citizens will be or are being blessed. And you'll notice it's intermingled between present tense, the first one, the last one, and future tense. I think that is very intentional as well, conveying this idea that we're in that intermediate period between the first coming of Christ, the future second coming of Christ. It's that already not yet tension. Christ has already come, but he's not yet fully consummated this kingdom that he has brought in. We're in the middle, and so we're in the those generations that are, yes, blessed, absolutely, because we're in Christ. And we are receiving the blessings now, often in part. We will receive these blessings in full in the future. So it makes perfect sense to speak of them as already not yet. Yours is now, yours shall be in the future. That's the sense that's being conveyed here. And I want to be very clear as we look at these Beatitudes, and my, my desire today is to look at the first four, and the next week we'll look at the second four. There's eight. There, there's an inclusion here. And then you've got a ninth one at verse eleven, but virtually everybody understands that to be the beginning of the next section. This is not a roadmap for social reform. It was very popular in the late nineteenth and into the 20, very much in the twentieth century. The the social gospel a much more liberal, progressive, theologically speaking, approach to the scriptures to look at the Sermon on the Mount, particularly to look at the Beatitudes, and primarily understand it as moralism. This is a how-to, a what-to-do. This is a roadmap for ending war, ending poverty, ending ignorance, ending hunger, solving crime, if you just check these boxes and do these things, notably, divorced from any concept of righteousness or salvation or repentance or Jesus Christ, if you do these things, and making them essentially a list of works, society will be reformed, social reform will happen, and uh, the future, Kingdom will come in by our own might and by our own effort. That's not what the Beatitudes are. I think our danger, maybe more so than thinking of the Beatitudes in that direction, would be to take them as just a plan to earn salvation. If you want to earn your standing before God, if you want to merit favor with God, do these eight things, check these lists, and you will be accepted in his sight. It is not external legalism. The context is very clear. The message is for Christian disciples. He sat down. His disciples came to him, verse 1. He's preaching to his disciples. At this point in the gospel, Jesus, and particularly his miracles have been drawing these vast crowds, thousands and thousands of people. And what you begin to see in, in all of the Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, is this understanding that Jesus does not want crowds. Jesus is not concerned with the numbers game. Jesus is not con- concerned with statistics in a big showing. What Jesus is concerned with is disciples. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to believers. Believers present on that day 2,000 years ago. Believers present today. If you were a believer in Jesus Christ, these words are directly to you. And he's telling believers, he's telling us, the kingdom of heaven has come. And this is what it looks like if you are a citizen of the kingdom. This is a pronouncement. This is a pronouncement that if you are in the kingdom, there is a lifestyle that's going to flow from a regenerate heart. It doesn't come from you. It it does not come from your own efforts or works or abilities or skill set. It comes from a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a citizen of the kingdom, this lifestyle is going to flow out of you. An in increasing measure that's progressive sanctification, but nonetheless it will be there and what you find as you get into the Gospels is this is so often presented by Jesus this lifestyle of a regenerate heart, this lifestyle of a believer in Christ is in contrast with the world so often you see Jesus telling you that the world will tell you this here 's the truth it 's in contrast with the world disciples of Christ will by their very nature, live a life that stands out for the world. And so often it's in contrast with the religious hypocrites. That's another real bone of contention with Jesus. Those who play at religion, those who put on the outward external facade. And of course, Jesus is always, always primarily concerned with what's going on in the heart, the, the inner person. And just like this is not a roadmap for social reform, this is not a plan to earn salvation, the blessings that are attached to each one of these characteristics are not those subjective, fickle types of happiness that depends on external circumstances and feelings. I think we come into this world pre-wired that way. I think it's a result of the fall. And our world certainly enforces that idea, that, that happiness comes from having stuff. Happiness comes from your circumstances. But this is much deeper than this. This is a happiness that is pronounced upon us from divine, a divine on high God, the creator. And he says, you are blessed because I am blessing you. And it's it's much deeper than externals. That's why the word blessed I think is more appropriate than happy. You could say happy, but the word happy in our English language carries a lot of baggage. It, it's very circumstantial and, and subjective. This is a picture of kingdom life in the fallen world, in a fallen world. If you are a follower of Christ, these are the characteristics that you mark. I want to look at four, just briefly. The first four. Number one. He says in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ is describing those who are in his kingdom. And the first character quality, character quality that he says marks one of his disciples is a poverty of spirit. A spiritual poverty a spiritual bankruptcy, a spiritual humility, a spiritual helplessness. Those are all ways of saying, I think what Christ is getting at here. It is the woman, it is the man who recognizes that he is helpless, he is defenseless, he is unable to do anything in and of himself to merit the favor of God. I am spiritually bankrupt. That is the first characteristic that Jesus points to, to someone who is a citizen of his kingdom. I am a sinner. I have nothing to offer God but my sin and my cholesterol, as Rod Rosenblatt likes to say. I have nothing. I'm bankrupt, spiritually speaking. I'm poor. I have nothing to plead. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing in my pockets that I can give to purchase heaven. I don't have it. I'm poor in spirit. And I think very naturally that first character trait leads to the second character trait that he mentions in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. Or another way you could loosely translate that is, happy are those who are unhappy. Happy are those who are unhappy. That's quite a paradox. What what kind of unhappiness, what kind of sorrow, what kind of mourning brings about the blessings of Christ, the comfort of Christ? Well, if the first characteristic is to be poor in spirit, to be bankrupt in spirit and acknowledge it, that's one thing. That's great. That, that is step one. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a, a citizen of his kingdom, you have to recognize your spiritual poverty. But it's another thing to mourn over that. It's one thing to acknowledge it. It's another thing to mourn it. It's another thing to express sorrow and to grieve over it. Confession is one thing. Contrition is another thing. And they have to go together. True repentance involves both. A true follower of Christ exhibits both of these. I am both uh, confessing that I have nothing to bring, and I am also contrite and mourning and sorrow. Sorry that I have nothing to bring. That's a, a, you could maybe say the second stage of spiritual blessing. Jesus is talking about people who are grief stricken over. It's not just that I recognize I'm a sinner. It's that I'm grief stricken that I'm a sinner. It messes me up that I'm a sinner. It bothers me deeply that I'm a sinner. It's that godly mourning and sorrow over the fact that I have nothing to offer And I mourn over my sinfulness. It's a sense of powerlessness. Of spiritual bankruptcy. It's a sense of uncleanness. And unworthiness. And a sorrow over that. It's a sense of. If there's going to be any life or joy, it is going to have to be by God's grace alone because I cannot find it or produce it within myself. And I say a sense of that because it is true, objectively, biblically speaking, that everybody is poor in spirit. Friends, I hate to break it to you, you're poor in spirit. You're poor in spirit, the Bible tells you, whether you know it or not. But it's the, the, the ones who are blessed are the ones who get that. It's the ones who are blessed, Jesus says, that sense their powerlessness, that sense their uncleanness that mourn over it. It's the ones who can admit it and embrace it and get it and feel it and mourn it. And they're keenly aware of it and they have no other course but to turn to Jesus in repentance. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And he says those who get it and they plead for the mercy of God, they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are being and will be comforted. Third, blessed are the poor spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Thirdly, verse five Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now meekness, I think of all the Beatitudes, meekness is notoriously the most Slippery to get a hold of. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little tricky to define. Meekness is not a personality trait. I think you have to be very clear about that. It's not just a nice, easygoing disposition. Some people come into the world like that. I think some people by nature and genetics are just easygoing people. That's a personality trait. And I think some people by nurture become meek. I don't think Jesus is talking about some people are easygoing, reserved, shy, timid, because they were always beat down as a child. That's a personality trait. Or the child who was raised in a house where the parents never said the word no and always spoke in soft, loving tones. And there was never any conflict or arguing or raising of voices. And as they mature into adulthood, they are very mousy kind of people. That's a personality trait. I don't think Jesus is talking about timidity or mousiness. I don't think he's talking about introverts. I'm an introvert by nature. I just, I just am, always have been. That's just a personality trait. It's not right or wrong. It's not good or bad. It just is what it is. The world needs introverts. The world needs, ext- needs extroverts. I think what Jesus is talking about in all these Beatitudes is not personality traits. He's talking about Character traits. And specifically, he's quoting here Psalm 3711. If you have some time, you might just want to go read the first half of Psalm 37. I think it really fleshes out the portrait of meekness. If you look at meekness in the Greek, it is often translated gentleness. It is a spiritual character trait. I think of it as very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that doesn't come natural to us. I don't think even the most introverted, shy, mousy person is by nature gentle in the spiritual sense of the word. And when you look at the word meek in the Scriptures, it's often coupled with concepts like humility and patience and kindness and teachability. All those things that don't come to us Naturally, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's again related to this recognition of my fallibility and my sin and my shortcomings. And I don't have it all figured out and I don't have it all together in this life. I'm willing to be taught. I'm willing to be molded. And I want to be kind and open hearted and humble to other people who are in the same boat that I am all just beggars looking for the place to get a crumb that that's the idea i think and he says to these people who are meek these people who are humble and gentle because of the work of the spirit in our hearts that theirs ultimately will be the earth that's an amazing promise this idea of being co-heirs with christ and inheriting all of creation You see how these all hang together. You don't just pick one and and take it. These are all a a conglomerate portrait. The the citizens of the kingdom are poor in spirit. The citizens of the kingdom mourn that spiritual poverty. The uh, citizens of the kingdom, by extension and by the work of the Holy Spirit, are meek and gentle and humble. And that leads to a fourth one that I want to look at this morning. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, in every one of these, Jesus is addressing, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be happy? I I mentioned last week, I think every human being, whether you're a believer or not, wrestles with that question over the course of your life. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be blessed? And the culture will tell you, the world will tell you, you will be happy if you just wear this or if you just buy this or if you just uh, accumulate this or if you consume this. The world will tell you, hey, if you have an itch, go out and scratch it. That will make you happy. If you have a desire, go out and fulfill it. That will make you satisfied. And I'm going to tell you one of the, I think, most profound and yet simplest secrets to life. You can pursue decade after decade what the world holds out, the carrot on the stick, to tell you you will be happy. And sometimes you'll grab it, and sometimes you'll spend years chasing it, and you'll never grab it. And either way, you're not going to be satisfied. You'll get that promotion. You'll get that girl. You'll get that bank account. You'll get that insurance policy. You'll get that new Xbox, or you'll get that one millionth like on Instagram, whatever, and you won't be satisfied that that desire will never go away chasing the things of the world. C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. There is a desire in the human heart and it seeks everything possible to fill that desire. And it will not be filled by the things of this world. And I think Lewis is right. I think this is exactly what Jesus is getting at here. That hunger that cannot be satisfied, that thirst that cannot be satisfied by this world is a constant reminder that you were made for another world. A constant reminder that this world is not the ultimate reality. It is the brief prelude to eternity, which is the ultimate reality. And our hearts will not be satisfied until we get that. And Jesus Christ is preaching that, offering that, extending that. And I love this metaphor of hunger and thirst. That is the universal metaphor. I don't care who you are, where you live, when you live, how old you are, etc., etc. Everybody knows what it's like to hunger, everybody knows what it's like to thirst. That is the universal metaphor. And particularly, you think of these disciples. 2,000 years ago, here's Jesus on this mountaintop. These are desert people. This is the ancient Middle East. These are people that know what it's like to be so thirsty that the only obsession in your life is to get water. You can think of nothing else. These are people that know what it's like for a crop to fail And there's no food in the stores and all you can think about is getting something. That You give up everything this world has for a cup of water. You give up everything this world has for a bite of bread. That's the kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about. Deep thirst. Deep hunger. Everybody here this morning has a deep thirst and hunger in their soul. The question is, what are you going to look to to satisfy it? And I can stand here and tell you what the world offers won't satisfy. I know there's some people that just got to learn that the hard way. Parents, I know some of you have children that are learning that the hard way. But it is an ultimate truth. You cannot, you can't fight against ultimate truths. It's going to come to bear in time. And the one who is in Christ knows that anything this world has to offer, making a name for yourself, things, wealth, pleasure, excitement, entertainment, they have their place, but they fade in the background to pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody's going to say, look, I've been in church all my life. I've been involved in religion all my life. I've never experienced the payoff. I come to church, it just seems boring to me. I've reduced my participation to Easter and, and funerals. Well, maybe it's because you haven't tried God on a full-time basis. It, it's easy to play at it, religion. It's easy to go through the motions. Jesus says those who hunger and thirst... Will be satisfied. It doesn't say those who trifle and play at religion. Those who pursue Jesus with that tenacity of the starving person, the tenacity of the dehydrated person. How do we do that? We read God's Word. How much time are you spending in God's Word? We we pray. How much time do you spend in prayer? We come to the Lord's table regularly. We gather together each Lord's Day to be strengthened and to be satisfied and to be fed. To seize this promise that those who pursue the things of God with a brokenness, a poverty of spirit, a meekness and a hunger and a thirst with all of their heart will find The Lord Jesus Christ fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises of your gospel. We thank you for the living bread and the water of life that satisfies the hungry and thirsty soul. Lord, draw us to Jesus Christ, our only source of ultimate satisfaction. This day we pray in his holy name. Amen.